Let's take our Bibles and be finding Paul's letter to the Romans, the greatest letter ever written in all of human history was Paul's letter to the Romans. And uh, we're going to look at a passage of scripture that's very familiar to many people today as we begin a brand new series of messages on the victorious disciple. What does it mean to live in victory? I think it's a very timely and appropriate uh, theme for us that will take us all the way through Easter talking about victory. There's no greater day in the world to demonstrate victory and what it means to know victory and live in victory than the day we celebrate the most victorious thing that's ever happened on planet earth, which is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. In 1970, George C. Scott won an Academy Award for his portrayal of one of the most iconic soldiers in the history of the United States, General George S. Patton. And I suppose the most familiar scene in that whole movie, for those of you that may have seen it, occurs during the first six minutes of the film, uh, where General Patton, speaking in front of this gigantic American flag, is addressing the assembled soldiers of the United States Third Army uh, just prior to their invasion of France for the liberation of Europe in 1944. And uh, of course, if you've seen the movie, you know I can only repeat about 10% of it. Uh, but one of the things that he reminds those soldiers uh, is something that's generally been true, I think, throughout our history as a country. Uh, you remember what he said? Americans love a winner and will not tolerate a loser. Americans play to win all the time. And those are sentiments, I think, that reflect exactly how Patton thought. And I also think that they reflect well how most Americans tend to think. Most everybody I know would rather win than lose, amen. Everybody who has won or been a winner or received a trophy for something, knows the proverbial thrill of victory. Everybody likes to win, everybody wants to win. We play the game to win. Whether it's in the military or in the business world, on the athletic field, uh, in the academy or in the classroom, there's nothing like the thrill of victory. I was on a state championship team when I was a teenager, a baseball team, and I still remember how that felt. Even to this day, 100 years later, I remember the wonder of what that felt like. And you know, uh, to some degree anyway, I think that God designs our spiritual life to be experienced in something of the same way. There's nothing like the thrill of victory in terms of how you understand life today and what life is gonna be like in the future. I think this concept of victory, this concept of winning, is a very spiritual thing. In fact, victory is a spiritual condition that's supposed to mark the life of every born-again believer. There's something wrong if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, transformed by the presence of Jesus Christ, and yet you're living a defeated kind of life. There's just something inconsistent about that. There's something not right about that. The Bible says victory is a spiritual condition that's supposed to mark the life of every born-again believer. The Bible says it in 1 John 5 and verse 4, this is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. I mean, for years, what's your favorite hymn? 
most Baptists, aside from amazing grace, would probably say victory in Jesus. I heard that old, old story of a Savior who came from glory, who gave his life on Calvary to save a wretch like me. Oh, victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. He bought me or sought me and bought me with his redeeming blood. He loved me ere I knew him and all my love is due him. He plunged me to what? Victory beneath the cleansing flood. And what that means is that salvation makes the one with faith a winner because of the person and work of Jesus Christ. The problem is sometimes because of the pressures of the world, the circumstances of life, our experiences, sometimes we lose the victory of our salvation. We possess the victory that can only be found in a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Oh, we've got it. We own it. It's ours. But why is it that for so many believers, we don't feel it? We failed to experience it. We failed to live it. And you can know that because there are times where your life becomes dry and your life becomes barren. There are times when believers become sour and dour. The joy's gone, that sense of victory. I mean, everybody's riding on the cloud the minute they get saved, right? And then the devil cranks up the heat. And if you're not careful, you can lose your song. You can be overwhelmed by confusion and Overwhelmed by anxiety and discouragement, sometimes even exhaustion. That's a common experience for most believers I know. And because that's such a common experience, I want us to take the next few weeks and go on a journey in a series that I'm calling The Victorious Disciple. We're going to look at a few areas. I could have looked at 20, but we're only going to look at eight critical areas to living a life of consistent, continual victory as a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we begin today with a very brief but a very familiar passage of Scripture that highlights what I think is a non-negotiable component of a victorious Christian life. We're in Romans chapter 12. Today, we're only going to look at the first couple of verses. Let's stand together as we honor the reading of God's Word. The words will be on the screen. This is short enough Let's read this one out loud together. Everybody together. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Father, we come before you once again this morning thanking you for your word, thanking you for the promises of your word, and thanking you, Father, for the spiritual blessings and the spiritual benefits that come to us through the indwelling presence and power of the very person of Jesus Christ within the life of those of us who belong to him. And I pray that, Lord, if there's dryness and barrenness, there is a noticeable absence or lack of joy in people's lives today, that today would be a starting point of refreshment and encouragement as we look at some important passages of Scripture that help us to get back to the basics so that we can ensure that what is ours 
by divine right because of the presence of Christ within us is something that we're experiencing every single day of our lives. Thank you for the victory that can be ours only through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And it's in his wonderful name that we pray. And everybody together said, amen. Thank you, church. You all can be seated. Those of you who are familiar with Paul's letter to the Romans know that uh, the first 11 chapters of Romans is the single most important theological statement in the Bible. In terms of what we're to believe as followers of Jesus, the book of Romans is the most important book of the Bible in terms of matters of our faith, matters of theology. It's all about the gospel. And those first 11 chapters of Romans kind of set up the, the uh, change in direction that Paul takes here in the beginning of Romans chapter 12. Paul knows that the gospel is very important. What we know about what God has done for us is critically important, but the gospel is about much more than knowledge. Uh, knowledge is supposed to be transformational, and so Paul understands that. The gospel is not just informational. It's also supposed to have an effect on the person whose life has been changed by it. So in that sense, it's supposed to be transformational. The gospel demands a response from people. And the right response to the gospel, what those of us who have been born again through faith in Jesus Christ, through his person and work, his death, burial, and resurrection, we're supposed to respond rightly to the gospel of Jesus Christ as it's summarized in the first 11 chapters of Romans and how we're to respond, the right response to the gospel is summarized by Paul in the first two verses of Romans chapter 12. He says, I appeal to you, therefore. Now you remember from your rudimentary studies uh, in terms of biblical interpretation that anytime there's a therefore in scripture, the reader is supposed to determine what the therefore is Therefore, that's right. And so Paul says, therefore, I make this appeal to you. And the therefore refers to everything Paul has said in the first 11 chapters of this letter. Everything that God has done uh, by his grace for a fallen sinful humanity, as Paul has laid it out in the first 11 chapters of Romans, therefore, in light of all of that, through the person and work of Jesus Christ on, his, on, on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, how am I to respond to this gospel? Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, by the mercies of God, in light of everything that God has done for us through the cross and the empty tomb, present your bodies as a what? Say it out loud. As a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Mark the word present there in your notes. The word present in this context means to offer, to offer as a gift, or it can mean to set or to place before someone. That's an image of the wise men in the birth narratives of the Lord Jesus Christ. The wise men came bearing gifts that they what? Presented to the Christ child. They offered gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh, and they did that presumably by setting those gifts as objects of worship in the very presence of the newborn king of kings and the Lord of lords. And here, using the exact same language, this is what Paul is directing believers to do only in a sacrificial sense. And that sacrifice 
that Paul is telling them to make is a very unique kind of sacrifice in a couple of ways. One, it's unique, and that the sacrifice now that he's calling you and I as born-again believers to make in the presence of the King of kings and Lord of lords is you. You're not to bring lambs to the Lord. You're not to bring animals. You're not to so much bring sacrificial gifts, although that's still appropriate. But that's not the most important offering that you give to God. The most important of all offerings is not a financial gift. It's not even a song of praise as we often sing about, this sacrifice of praise. No, Paul says present your body. And that makes it unique. You're to offer yourself the very presence of the Lord. But secondly, it's a unique sacrifice in that it's a living sacrifice. Did you notice that? Most sacrifices, particularly those that were offered in the Old Testament, were sacrifices that were offered unto death. They bled out, so to speak. In the same way Jesus bled out on the cross. The sacrificial Offering was required to die. Life was given in exchange for life. But this sacrifice that Paul is preaching before born-again believers is a unique sacrifice that is not to die, at least not physically. Yours is to be a sacrifice that keeps on living and that keeps on going, and so that makes it unique. It's a sacrifice of humanity. It's the sacrifice of your own life. But it's a different kind of sacrifice. It doesn't die. It keeps on living. And here's the thing. This idea of living sacrifices, man, that's Christian to the core. You don't have that language in any other religious system. Offer your bodies a living sacrifice. And what that means is the believer is by volition to offer himself, to place his or her life every day on an altar of dedication to God. Not a literal altar, but a symbolic altar in which you lay yourself prostrate before the Lord, offering the totality of your life to God, your whole life, every part of your life, not just a segment of your life, not just a compartment of your life, not just a piece or a sliver of your life, but you offer every part of your life unto God as a sacrifice so that he can use you in an eternal and holy kind of way. This is what we often refer to as what? Surrender. Oh, that's another song we like to sing about. All to, Je- oh, all to Jesus, I surrender. All to him, I freely give. I will ever love and trust him in his presence. Daily live, I surrender all. But can I just say this morning, that's much easier to sing about than it is to do every day. Being a living sacrifice is hard. And a lot of people hear that and they read this passage of scripture and they think, boy, man, that's a sold out person. I'm glad it's only the monks in the monasteries that have to do that. I'm glad it's only the God-called preachers that have to kind of live in the Bible every day of their life. I'm glad it's only them that have to do that. Those that have to write sermons every week, and I understand how they need to lay themselves on the line before the Lord as an object of dedication to God, to be used by God, but man, I'm glad that doesn't apply to everybody. Can I make a statement this morning? To be a living sacrifice is not a category for the few. It's a call for everybody. Every single one of us is called 
to be a living sacrifice to God. You know the biggest problem with a living sacrifice? You know, sacrifices that you get up on the altar and then you just slit their throat and they die, no problem, because they can't go anywhere. Living sacrifices can be problematic because living sacrifices tend to keep wiggling off the altar. Because sometimes being on a cold slab is not the most comfortable place to be. So we have this bad habit, don't we, of when things don't always go the way we like them or when God's leading us in a direction that's often uncomfortable for us. We want to wiggle off the altar and run in the opposite direction. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but you'd be lying if you said you never did that. Or at least you'd never thought about doing it. I told you all I'm a grandfather. I don't know if I've told you lately. Anyway, I had, the, I had babysitting duty. And I always loved the look on my wife and my daughter's face when they walk out the door with me holding the baby. It's like, they're not quite sure if they really want to go. So I have to kind of shoo them out because we have a great time. We eat Hershey's Kisses and crackers and I mean, we just have the best time. And you know, I had him in my lap yesterday and he does this. He loves being in Papa's lap and he'll stay there for a while, but there'll come a time he gets tired of being in Papa's lap. And there always comes a time inevitably that he starts to wiggle and he starts to squirm and he starts to shake his little bottom down toward the edge of wherever we're seated until he wiggles himself down on the ground and can scoot off wherever it is he wants to go to chase after whatever he wants to chase after. And that's what we often do. We get restless in our walk with the Lord and we wiggle off the altar. We sense there are better things to do, more exciting places to go. But here's the thing. Paul gives us this incredible reminder that it's only when our lives are continually stretched out on an altar before God that you can live in continual victory as you journey with God. The victory doesn't come so much in how you travel. The victory comes in where you lie. In this continual state of offering before the presence of a holy God. Only then is our sacrifice, to use Paul's language, acceptable to God. In other words, that's when the sacrifice of your life is well-pleasing to God. Now, what does this mean practically? There are three components to offering your body as a living sacrifice that, that Paul alludes to here today. What does it mean to offer my body as a living sacrifice to the Lord? Well, it means, first of all, that I offer my body physically. There's a, there's a physical sense in which you offer your literal body to the Lord. And that may seem like an elementary thing to, to say, but the fact is that most people think that their life is their own to live any way that they please. That they can live they can do with their bodies whatever they want to do with their bodies, go their own way, live like they want to live. But that kind of thinking is totally foreign to the Bible. Y'all realize that, don't you? Your, your body is not yours to do with whatever you choose to do with it. That's actually old line way of thinking that goes all the way back to the ancient Greeks. It's called Platonism from the philosopher Plato, who basically taught that man was made up of two component parts, the body and the spirit. The spirit was what was valuable, so that was what was to be nourished or nurtured. But they saw the body as evil, uh, something that wasn't going to last. And so the philosophy was because your body is inherently evil and because it's wasting away and it's not going to be carried with you beyond this life anyway, 
eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we what? For tomorrow we die. So it doesn't matter what you do with your body. And that's why the Greeks and the Romans had such licentious, lascivious, pagan, sexually degenerate kinds of lifestyle. Of course, Christianity comes along, particularly through the pen of the Apostle Paul, and teaches something totally different, that your body actually is eternal, that your body is going to last forever, that your body may die this side of heaven, but when Christ comes again, your body will be raised from the dead and retransformed, and it will still be you, only in a glorified kind of way. So the body does matter. What you do with your body matters very much to God. It's not yours to do with whatever you choose to do with it. And most people still think, most people today are Epicureans and Platonists. They are. There's nothing new under the sun. This is the way most people, and listen, when you live that way in a totally self-centered kind of, of thought process where it's all my body and I get to do with it, you'll tend to fall off the edge in terms of excess. You'll tend to eat too much. I better not go there. I got a room full of Baptists. Drink too much, eat too much. We'll oversex. This is a world in which we live. Even our religious language. What is our religious language? We talk about giving my heart to Jesus Christ. When was your last time you ever heard it, somebody's testimony and they say, you know what, I offered my whole body to Jesus Christ. Nobody ever says that. And yet, that's what the Bible teaches, at least partly. You're to offer your body, your physical dimension to Jesus Christ. Why? Because your physical body becomes the house of the Lord. Where does God live? Not in temples made with hands. God is not a billion miles away, even as we speak. The kingdom of God is within you. And the king is within you because every king has to have a king, or every kingdom has a king, and the king lives within you by the presence of the very spirit of Christ. And so we become the very temple where God lives. You and, and me. And God paid an astronomical price to live there. God paid for the deed to your very body with the blood of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The blood of Christ purchased you. And this is why the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19, do you not know that your body, the soma, the body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? whom you have from God, you are not your own. Would you say that together with me? Together, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. How you use your body determines in large part whether you live in victory or defeat. Because if you use your body in ways that are contrary to the word of God, that is the classic definition of sin and no believer can live in persistent sin and live a life of victory at the same time. And so you gotta offer even your physical dimension to the Lord to be used in ways that bring honor and glory to him. Now there may be some, you go your own way, do your own thing with your body. There's some short-term pleasure to that. But in the end, there's nothing but frustration and pain in the long run because you can't dirty up a house that by title belongs to God and not pay a price of some kind. So I offer my body physically, but not only physically. Secondly, I'm to offer my body mentally. Mentally. 
It makes no sense to offer your body to God without also offering your mind to God. You know why? Are y'all still with me? Say amen. The mind controls the body. Everything you do with your body is preceded by a thought. First comes the thought, then comes the action. And that's why you have to offer not only your body, but because the mind controls the body, you have to offer your mind to God as well. Two commands follow in verse number two. Present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. But then in verse two, here are the commands. Do not be what? Conformed to this world, but be what? Transformed by the renewal of your mind. There it is. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. Don't get caught up and carried away with the thought patterns of the world. You see, each of us have a, have a, have a choice in terms of what we do with our minds. And this is why it's so important what you allow into your mind. And we all struggle with this. What we read, what we watch, uh, where we go. It matters to God what you allow into your mind because what goes into your mind is eventually gonna come out your body probably in some way. And so we have a choice. What will it be? Will I be conformed to the traffic patterns of the world or will I be transformed according to this new kingdom that I'm now living in as a born-again follower of the Lord Jesus Christ? Most people conform to the thought patterns in the world. And when the, uh, the biblical writers use the term world like Paul does here, they're talking about not the planet, but the world system, this evil world system that's under the control of the devil himself. It's a system that the, the devil leads and it's one that's designed to appeal to the base instincts of the human flesh, your sinful desires. And the reason most people do what they want with their bodies is because they buy into the world's lie that their bodies belong to them and it's theirs to use as they please. They buy into the world system. And what does the world system teach us? You're your own God. You control your own destiny. You only go around once in life. So grab all the gusto that you can. There is no such thing as absolute truth. You make up your own truth. Truth is whatever you want it to be. So define it. And then as we've heard so often, live according to your truth. Your truth. Well, it's either truth or it's a lie. You don't get to make up what truth is. And yet that's what the world says. And people by the multiplied millions buy into that every day. That's the drumbeat of the world. And most people that you know march in absolute lockstep to it. But the Bible says an acceptable sacrifice, a sacrifice that's well-pleasing to God is one that refuses to conform. It doesn't conform to conventional ways of thinking. It's a life that sees and responds to life from God's point of view, which always means from a biblical point of view. That's why you gotta know the world, or the word, because only when you know the word can you know God's heart, God's will, God's plan, and recognize a lie when you hear it, and then resist the lie by fleeing to the altar and staying on it in order to be used by God in holy kinds of ways. You have to be able to see and respond to life from God's point of view. The Bible calls that what? Wisdom. Wisdom. 
And the only way to make wise choices is to get in on God's mind so that God's desires become your desires. I mean, that, isn't that what you want for your life? I mean, we all want to live like Christ, but that always requires first a transformed mind, a renewed mind. And so we want to get to the place where we're so in tune with God that by offering ourselves as a living sacrifice, God can actually renew our mind in such a way so that his desires become our desires. We don't have to go and look it up, although there's nothing wrong with looking stuff up. Every professional does that when they get flummoxed and sometimes you have to do it. But the whole point is to be so abiding in Christ and so walking in the spirit of God. The only way you can do that is by staying on the slab Never getting up off the slab, never wiggling off the slab so that you're living in constant communion with the Lord. His thoughts become your thoughts and being able to say yes where you need to say yes and being able to say no where you need to say no, you don't have to think about it. You don't have to fret about it. You don't lose sleep over it. It becomes just as natural as breathing. This is the kind of disciple that lives in the victory of Jesus Christ. It always begins with the mind. Do not be conformed to this world, but be what? Transformed. You know what that word is in the Greek New Testament? Literally, metamorphosis. That's actually an English word. We call that a transliteration. It just comes to us in the original and becomes part of our own language without even having to change it. All of us knows, knows what a metamorphosis is. It's a, it's a what? It's a transformation. It's the same word that's used in the Gospels is sometimes translated transfiguration. Isn't that what happened to Jesus on the mountain with Peter, James, and John? Our Lord Jesus was what? Transfigured. If I can make up a word, he was metamorphosized. It was a complete transformation from the inside out. That's what happens to a caterpillar that becomes a butterfly. It's what happens to a tadpole that becomes a frog. Indeed, it's what happened to Jesus on the mountain. In a way, there was no doubt about it. Those disciples didn't say, you know, when they came down off the mountain, oh, it was no big deal. I mean, it's such a radical change that took place in front of them. I don't think English language can adequately reflect what they saw, but it was a complete transformation. And here's the thing. If you want to live as a victorious disciple, it requires a metamorphosis of your thinking, a metamorphosized mind. Your thoughts become God's thoughts. And this is why the Bible says things like, set your minds on things above and not on things that are on the earth. And by the way, that's a present imperative. It means you have to keep doing it. You have to keep offering yourself on an altar of God every day. You have to keep on setting your minds on things above. The Bible says in 1 John 2 and 15, do not love the world or the things in the world. That's a present negative imperative, which means you got to keep on resisting the world. You don't just say yes to Jesus, hey, born again, and never have to break a sweat. Now, there's some things you got to keep on doing. You have to keep on offering yourself 
as a living sacrifice. You have to keep on being transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's a present imperative. You have to keep on setting your mind on things above, not on earthly things. You have to keep on not loving the world or the things in the world because if anyone loves the world, the Bible says the love of the Father is not in him. So salvation is not a license to live like you want to live. That's letting the world squeeze you in. We belong to Christ and we submit both our bodies and our minds on that altar every day so that we think God thoughts that lead to God honoring actions. Everybody tracking with me? Say amen. And then finally, I offer my body spiritually. Physically, mentally, and spiritually. Notice the last part of Romans 12, 2. That by testing, you may discern what the will of God is. What is good and acceptable and perfect. See, the thing that you ought to want to do more than anything else as a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ is to know the will of God and get in on it. By testing, that's a word that means to approve. And it's, it's the way a, a jeweler determines real gold from fool's gold, right? They've got a way that they can do that. They can apply chemicals to it and determine this one is real and this one is not. And that's part of the reason that God has given us his word so that through our daily experience in life with the word of God in our hand and the spirit of God in our hearts, we can come to a proper conclusion about what's kingdom authentic and what's not so that we can live in a way that pleases God. And that always means knowing the will of God and getting in of the will of God so that my will, and each of us have one, you know it's true, each of us have what we want, we have a direction we want to go, things we want to do, people we want to be with, people we want to run around with. We've got all of this which composes us, but the victorious disciple lays all of that, carries all of that stuff on the altar with him or her and offers it to God so that what rules and reigns in my life is not my will, but God's will. Now, I'll tell you this morning, that's, that, that's, that's a challenge because your will will present the biggest obstacle to living in victory than just about anything else. Oh, you'll blame everybody else when you're in defeat. You'll blame your husband. Husbands always get blamed first. You'll blame your husband. You'll blame your wife. You'll blame your, blame your kids, your, your family, your boss, your, your employer, the government. I mean, you'll, you'll find somebody to blame, but the reality is the biggest obstacle to you living in victory is you. It's you. Oswald Chambers calls this sacrifice of our will for God's will, here's what he calls it, the greatest crisis we ever face. I think it's absolutely right. But I tell you, if you ever want to get to the point spiritually where nothing appeals to you that doesn't appeal to God, you got to take your will on the altar with you and say, Lord, I not only give you my body, I not only give you my mind, but I'm willing to sacrifice my desires for your very best in my life. That's the picture here. I offer God my will, my mind, 
and my flesh that I may know and do the superior will of God. That's the very definition of a victorious life right there. Somebody that knows the will of God and consistently lives in it. Because only then, here's the thing, y'all still with me say amen. Only then are you truly worshiping God. That's when you really worship God. Can I just say this morning, the greatest act of worship is not about the buildings that we gather in. It's not even so much about the people that we associate with on the day of worship. It's not measured by the clothes we wear. It's not measured by the songs we sing. It's not measured by the classes we take. True worship is offering yourselves completely to God to be used by him in ways that are holy and honorable. Paul says it right here. This is your spiritual act of worship. More literally, your logical worship. The word is logikos. We get our word logical from it. And when you think about it, absolutely, it makes perfect sense. I beseech you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, in light of everything that God has done for us in the person and work of Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection, and all the benefits that come with being born again by faith in his person and work, and with the understanding that God is not finished with the work of Jesus Christ, I still believe it, now more than ever, Christ is coming again. And in light of all of that, in light of all that God has done for us, it is absolutely logical to say that the right response is for me to lay all of my life before the Lord for him to use in holy and righteous purposes. That's the only rational, reasonable response to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Any other response, and you're gonna miss God's purpose. Any other response, and you'll miss God's best. Any other response, and you'll forfeit the victory that could have been yours if you had just gotten up on the altar, offered every part of your life to God, and make sure you stay on the altar every day of your life. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable, logical, spiritual worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is where you find true and lasting victory as a disciple of Jesus Christ. It's God's word and all God's people said, amen. amen.